democracy, politics, inequality, leadership, development, poverty, peace, conflict, prosperity. Welcome to The Critical Take with Nopomilelo Runji, disrupting conventional thinking. In this episode, we debunk land reform in South Africa, and I am in conversation with Ayabonga Kawe. Land reform. It can't be ignored, it can't be avoided, and it certainly can't be postponed forever as part of redressing the injustices of the past. But what kind of land reform does South Africa need? Is Section 25 of the Constitution, the Property Clause, really a barrier to effective land reform? Is land expropriation without compensation the best solution? Why has the policy of willing buyer, willing seller not worked? In my conversation with development economist Ayabonga Tawe, we try to unpack some of these issues and to answer some of these questions. I'm actually interested in, in discussing this whole notion of redress and redistribution. Obviously, oh. South Africa's inequality is historical. Um, it is underpinned by a capitalist system based on exploitation, extreme exploitation, mm. and dispossession of the majority of um, citizens. And as such, obviously, to create this, this um, mass cheap labor, right? Um, and during the struggle, one of the promises of the liberation movement was that they're going to reverse this disposition, mm. right? They're going to return the land, return the wealth, etc. And so it has been a big part of how we judged post-apartheid South Africa is how is it doing in terms of keeping that promise. Mm. So from 1994, obviously, until now, we've had a swathe of macroeconomic policies. And what, in your view, has been the position, positioning uh, of redress, of redistribution, mm. of land reform throughout that throughout this period, I mean, we've got, we, we went from um, the re, re, uh, RDP, then we went to Gear, mm. then we went to Askisa, you know, etc. We've had so many um, reiterations and reviews and starting again, starting afresh and, you know, rethinking things. We've had um, the Tabumbeki era characterized as the 1996 class project that mm. were, you know, really brought in neoliberal policies and self-imposed structural adjustment, you know, that's some of the critique. So what is actually the truth um, and how do we judge? It's interesting, I mean, that, that you ask at the end of the question, what, what is the real truth? Um, I am one of the people who believe that there are multiple dimensions to, 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 to every truth. Um, and you're seldom exposed to all of it. Mm. Um, you know, there's something interesting that, that you speak about, um, and many people either use the double R's or, or the triple R's, mm. so redress, redistribution. And I would add one that we, we don't talk about as often now, which is reconstruction. Okay. 
because I, I want to use that lens because in my view, apartheid and you know, uh, subsequent phases of colonialism were really a, you know, a program that was aimed at destructing the social and the public fabric of, of African life. Mm. Um, and so in the democratic era, one of the key tasks that we had was how do you reconstruct the African society? How do you reconstruct the African psyche? And I think land fits into that. Mm. Um, so much so that the RTP, if you read out the entire acronym, was the Reconstruction and Development Program. program yeah. Because there was an implicit recognition in that, that you needed to reconstruct what had been destructed. Mm. Um, because when we say reconstruct, unlike many other post-colonial societies, we, we couldn't have said that everything had been decimated. Yeah. It's quite clear that you know, the white schools worked. It's quite clear that white agriculture worked. It's quite clear that um, you know, white amenities, white public goods worked. Um, and in black life, very few of those things did. It was an exception if they did. Mm. Um, and so for me, the debate around land reform and redress is also about widening the aperture of what it is that we talk about. Mm. So that if we have a coherent framework, you're then able to embed land in that framework around how you think about issues of redress. Uh, I mean, one example of, of what happens when you have a very narrow formulation of redress is you then have this very equity and mm. share exchange focused yeah. uh, broad-based black economic empowerment, which targets as an arena for redress existing companies that sit primarily in the listed space or in the formal sector economy without really understanding that if you are really genuine in your conception of redress, you would understand that that redress takes multiple forms in different spaces in society. So, so you ask about land reform. The reality is that how we've approached land reform right through from the RDP program and the targets that were set there through to where we are now has failed to overcome the, what I call the agrarian dualism of African life. Mm -hmm. So I often make the example of, of where I come from. I grew up in the Eastern Cape, which traditionally for white society is one of the key areas that are crucial for the production of wool and sheep production and maybe cattle and livestock here and there. Now, if you think about that for the black people that coexist in the same area, on the one hand, you had agriculture highly mechanized, using the latest inputs um, on large amounts of land to be able to produce for the domestic formal market and even the export market. On the other hand, you had subsistence producers, many of which uh, include my own family. Subsistence producers, small plots of land, very weak uh, integration into formal markets, yet, let alone export markets. So from an agricultural perspective, that's what you're talking about. But rural life is not just about production. Mm. Um, the use of land in rural life is not just about production. Um, there are the psychosocial and psychocultural connections that we have as African people to the land. The land is, um, you know, according to, to somebody, uh, I heard this a few years ago, a tux who was saying, in African life and in African jurisprudence and even how we think of uh, ourselves as people, the land is the medium that connects the dead, the living, and the yet-to-be-born. Mm. Um, so it's the medium through which those interactions between people at different existential stages interact. Now that's crucial for us. Before you even get to a materialist conception about what it is you produce, where you sell it, which is also important, but there's that primary psychocultural, psychosocial dimension to it. But you also add to that that there are other 
livelihood forms that have emerged in the countryside. And the whole idea of, for me, true liberation of people on the countryside was also about how do you overcome not only this agrarian dualism between white rural life and black rural life, but how do you do that in a way that opens up the universe of possibilities that people can have to eke out an existence and a livelihood. And that shouldn't just primarily be on the land. Um, there are other post-farmgate things that potentially you could be doing. I mean, if you look at historically white uh, rural elites, in the pre-1994 period, a lot of them were engaged in primary production. Mm. A lot of them left that. They, they found themselves in a debt cycle, withdrawal of subsidies by the mm. government through the GEAR program. And a lot of them ended up playing in value-added elements of that yeah. value chain. Right? A lot of them played in uh, you know, cold storage. A lot of them played in uh, the development of mills. A lot mm. of them started playing in the freight and in the logistics space. Yeah. Um, a lot of them started understanding that the agricultural sector value chain is much wider in conception than just putting a seed in the ground and certainly hoping that the weather and everything else will work mm. in your favor mm. so that you can harvest at the end of mm. the day. And I think that um, our land reform process has not been able to capture that nuance. Um, and so you even see it in what happens with the projects that we have. Yeah. You know, um, if, if we are to talk about you know, restitution for a second, you see a situation where people are given access to land and they in no way are given any post-settlement support. Mm. I'm not given the inputs I need. I'm not given seed, irrigation or anything yeah. like that. I'm not even given uh, you know, any safeguards especially in the context of climate change. You know, you're not even giving me any crop insurance. You're not even giving me anything that can safeguard me against variables that I don't have under my own control. Mm -hmm. And then added to that, you're not giving me access to a market. Yeah. I, I often make the case, and, and you know, the Brazilians uh, showed us this, that you have a school nutrition program. You have people you need to feed in hospitals. You have people you need to feed in prisons. And yet none of these have ever been incorporated in an intentional model that aligns them to some of the land reform yeah. beneficiaries. So if, I'm, if I've inherited a spinach farm, there is no way for me to be assured of that demand. Remember, people don't plant a, a seed in the ground without knowing who they're going to sell that to. Because then you're taking a risk. Mm. The bank will never give you any funding, mm. uh, be it the commercial banks or even the land bank, if you don't have an off-take agreement. And we failed in our approach on those basic things. Now, is that an indication of broader state failure? I would argue not. I think what it is a failure of is a failure to recognize the limitations of market-based land reform. Because think about it. If you've spent all of your money trying to acquire the farm, it really leaves you with very little to be able to provide any uh, collective post-settlement support for some of the beneficiaries on that land. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other weak blind spot is in terms of the very big aspirations we've had and yet we haven't really resourced it properly. If you look at the budgets for land reform over a 25-year period, everybody would agree that uh, we probably have done very little to expand the resource envelope for, for that program. Mm -hmm. On top of that, I think you saw this with the rains, you, you saw it with what was happening at Iesta Fabrik in Pretoria, mm -hmm. here on the Yuxke, uh, here in Alex, just across the highway. The reality is that the land reform debate in the context of South Africa, where more than 50% of your population is in the urban yes. context, is going to have to take very different dimensions to what it maybe takes in Kenya, with a large rural population, or even in our neighbors in Zimbabwe. Mm. 
So how does, for instance, the debate on land reform engage the task of regularizing and formalizing planning in informal settlements? You can't have an informal settlement that's been there since 1994. Some of them are even named after our leaders. Mm. You know, it's, it's still informal 25 years later. Yeah. Surely it's no longer a permanent or a temporary settlement or a temporary informal settlement if it's been there for as long as some of these settlements have. And yet every single time we have any rain, many of the people who have decided to settle in many of these low-lying areas are at risk uh, to lose life, property, uh, and all of those things. And I think our debate has failed to, to take into account uh, some of those notions. But by and large, I think the reason for that for me, in my view, is also our aspirational template for what a world-class post-apartheid African city looks like. Now, we had an operation a few years ago called Operation Fiela, which in my view was, was not a clean-up operation. It was an operation to really hound out the informal mm, sector mm. from the city. Yeah. Now, there are competing interests between landed people who have property, who are trying to defend the values of those properties, okay. and people who are trying to eke out an existence. Mm. So the property owners, um, in, it's in their interest to ensure that there is nobody who is selling cow's heads in the CBD, right? Because they attach the value of their you know, uh, property in relation to how European the mm. inner city looks like. Mm. And yet we're in Africa. You know? uh, everywhere you go on the continent, um, the inner city is a place where poor it's people ply their trades. Exactly. It's a marketplace. It's yeah. a coming together of people yeah. to create uh, an exchange value, which is what an economy is about. Yeah. And yet in this country, we've done everything in our power, pre-apartheid and even after apartheid, to try and segregate the city in a manner that makes it difficult for people to come together, mm. create value and exchange value together. Uh, our RDP program goes and builds houses on the fringe of the city. Yeah. And then we complain when people say, I don't want to engage this labor market anymore. We've got six million discouraged work seekers, many of them young, who are saying, I don't want to go to work anymore. Because at the end of the day, all I'm working for is money it's for transport. transport. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with how we've reorganized and configured space uh, in the post-apartheid city, in the post-apartheid town, and in the post-apartheid village. And so, for me, I, I become very wary when the land reform debate is synonymously mentioned with agriculture. Because I think, for me, yes. that's a very narrow that's, formulation that's very, yeah. of it. Yeah. And maybe we need to widen our aperture. Mm. And for me, the task really is... If you really want an economy that grows, if you want an economy that's more inclusive, have to address this task of reconstruction. Mm. You have to address this task of how do you reconfigure, for instance, the township as a sociological phenomenon in the post-apartheid period. Amapulu took us to that place mm. for us to go and die, mm. right? Mm. But how do you now fashion the township as a different sociological phenomenon mm. in the post-apartheid African city? And for you to be able to do that, one of the ways that you're going to have to do it is to be able to incentivize productive activity to move away from the center. It's got to move away from places like Santon. You know, if you ask anybody in Santon and you tell them that the construction sector is doing badly, they'll look at you funny because there's buildings propping up oh, everywhere. Yes. Yeah. But the reality is that they're only propping up here, mm. the richest square mile of the continent of Africa. But if you go to any other place, even tier two cities, I mean... You know, I was at the Buffalo City Municipality um, about three weeks ago. And you can see the massive decline that we've seen, mm. even in existing infrastructure. Mm. When our task in 1994 was to reconstruct and expand that infrastructure into our communities. The idea was 
to not just be reliant on Oxford Street and this London, yeah. but to be able to expand the same level of infrastructure progressively over time to Duncan Village, to Tanzania, to many of the other places within East London. Um, and what in essence has happened is that we haven't done that, but more importantly, we've failed to even maintain the infrastructure that we had. Reconstruction is a bit more targeted than mm. redistribution, because reconstruction says you're a group five. Yeah. You collapse the bridge on people. You fix tenders for the World Cup. Yeah. We want you, as part of your attempts at reconstruction, to build a million homes. Mm. And we want, them to, I want you to build half of those in land that you've already earmarked for development. Mm -hmm. It's an entirely different conversation. Yeah, it is. Right? Um, it is. You know, reconstruction then says to a young graduate, you've got this degree. You came from a very lush family. We'd like you to go to Khampasele in Limpopo and go and work there for a while. So like and a, we're not going to pay you an OSD. We're not going to pay you yeah. more money than somebody who's working mm. in social Like a compulsory area. youth service or yes. something like that. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Because the reality in this country is that if you live on the yellow side of the train tracks, you don't know how other people live. Oh, on no, the you side. don't. No. We know how white people live. Yeah. They don't know how we live. Mm. Mm. Um, and so... So for me, there is that idea around how do you build the social solidarity. We've tried to do it with our tax system. I mean, mm. if you earn more, you, yes, you pay you a bit pay more, more. So, yeah. which is fine. But I, I'm interested in how we extend that now to inheritance. There is already a slight tax there, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Mm. But how do we create this culture of using things like your inheritance? as your way to contribute to the reconstruction you, of our society. I mean, do, do you think there's any, uh, gonna, there's going to be any taking up of that kind of thinking within the African National Congress, which is running the state currently? I mean, it's been running the state. I think there are pockets of that debate in mm. the ANC. I think, I think there are people in the ANC who are interested in that debate. Um, I'm not a member of the ANC, so um, I, I'm not going to speak on behalf of them. Yes. Um, but I do know in my interactions with many people mm at multiple levels in the organization, right through from branch members to uh, office bearers, right through to some of the people in the National Executive Committee of mm. the ANC. There is that interest. But I think for a country, just like with, with the race debate, I, I mean, I often say for a country that was the poster child of the white supremacist project, we are very weak when it comes to speaking about race. Mm. We don't have a language. Mm. But also for the most unequal society in the world, mm. we're very, very weak in our language, and even in the toolkit of solutions to solve inequality. Mm. Very, very weak. Um, and I think, you know, there are many people in the ANC who are trying to clamor for some sense of how we, we address some of these issues. And whose responsibility is it to develop this language and this lexicon? It's not should only we, that of the ANC. Should we leave it to the political parties? We are in this trouble now because yeah. we demobilized the structures in our society exactly. and gave it to the ANC. Mm. One of the greatest inheritances I've received from my, from my parents. And you know, my parents are both teachers, uh, were active in the trade union movement, really don't have much. Um, and they gave me an education. But the other thing they gave me was this idea that you have to be involved. You have to, if it means you're involved in a church group, in a drama group, in a sports club, in a political party, in a union, get involved. Mm. Um, because there's nothing more soul-killing in our society than demobilization. Mm, mm. And what happened in 1994 and in the early 90s was that we demobilized our street committees, we demobilized all the structures in our community, we demobilized the women's groups, uh, we took away the political character 
from savings and you know mm. uh, credit groups mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we and we took mm -hmm. all of that politics and those aspirations and we lumped them on the ANC mm. Mm. and I'm saying I don't want that anymore yeah. we saw it with the student movement it was structures outside of the ANC and the alliance and the mass democratic movement that shifted the position of the ANC and its deployees in government mm. on the issue of fee-free education. Mm. Mm. I think we can do the same on many issues. Yeah. It's, not the, it's not the ANC Women's League that has prompted greater dialogue inside the ANC and mm. inside the MDM mm. on gender-based violence. Mm. It's not. Mm. It's been the structures organized as they are outside of society that have placed that pressure on the ANC. Now, the ANC often says they're a leader of society. Mm. And I think if you, if, if you, if you, if you want to lead, you've got to be able to be led as well. Yeah. Um, and so my view is that some of that language is emerging. Um, and my task is to see how, in my own small, humble way, I can make that contribution mm. um, and to those debates. So, uh, so, so, I mean, we're trying. I think on my end, I'm part of a work stream now. I'm coordinating a work stream in the Presidential Economic Advisory Council on inequality. Um, and, and a lot of that, for me, that debate is also about how do you tackle this big elephant of executive pay? Mm. Oh, yes. These guys are earning a lot of money. I've been resting Earning a lot of money. I've been, I've been reflecting on And I'm saying we've got thing. the tools. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, I, I was sitting the other day and I was saying, how many of us in this country have read Section 27 of the Employment Equity Act? When we think employment equity, it's about how many women do you have, mm. What, mm. all of that kind of stuff. But Section 27 of the Employment Equity Act says there is a responsibility for companies to not only report on income differentials, mm. but to actually target the reduction of those yes, differentials. Yes. Who's done it? Yeah. It's so true. It's something that, like I said, I've been reflecting on uh, in my columns this mm. year and basically arguing that we need to stop looking at just the bottom end about raising wages yeah. and look at the top, what's happening at the top, and we need to start Because that's how you compress, right? Yes. You don't compress just this. No, hands. we need to mm. just sandwich this thing. Yeah. yeah. Now... To what extent is the EFF right about the property clause in the Constitution being the barrier um, to land reform? It's a moot point. Who, who's tested it? Has somebody gone and said, okay, sure, we're going to take uh, Catherine Street and we're going to expropriate it without compensation in the public interest and define the public interest? Mm. Has somebody done that so that it then gets tested in front of a court of law? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. I think you know, they might be right. But I don't know if they're right, mm. if it hasn't been tested. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, um, you know, how we define public interest gives scope for the kind of reconstruction and redress that, that we're talking, talking about, about yeah. if we haven't tested it. Mm. So I don't know. I, I don't know. Why do you think um, there hasn't been appetite uh, in the, you know, you know uh, subsequent um, NC administrations to test it out? before actually entering into the whole process of reviewing this clause. Do you, so, so I remember, you know, former President Mbeki speaking about the conversations they had with, with the Zimbabwean government in ZANU mm. in the late 80s. Um, and one of the things that ZANU did at that point in time was to say, let's, let's 
maybe delay our demand for a thorough Greenland reform so that our brothers in South Africa can get their liberation okay. and that kind of okay. thing. And I think, in a very perverse way, the flip side of that has happened. Mm. Um, so our policymakers have been, to be honest, really scared to do it because of what was happening in Zimbabwe and the chaotic nature of that particular mm. land reform process, mm. which was justified. The reform process was justified. I think the yeah. mechanism and the method, yes. uh, in my view, lacked yeah. the kind of uh, structured coordination that would have allowed you to defend and sustain it. Mm. And now you're seeing a lot of backtracking, you know, remuneration and payment to some of the white farmers. Because if, if the process had been done properly initially, you wouldn't have this kind of uh, backtracking. Mm. So I think that's the one fear. I mean, I, I think also within, and I come back to this aspirational template, within the aspirational template and the historical language of the African National Congress as a liberation movement, especially after the defiance campaign of the 50s, mm. uh, or even that split with the Africanists uh, yes. in around 59 or so, mm. you have never had a language of the land debate. And that is also because the land debate has largely been an agrarian question. Mm. So even in countries where it's been prime center, it's always been largely rural populations. South Africa has been a bit different. Uh, highly diverse industrial landscape, um, much greater levels of urbanization than what you would have seen in many other places. Yeah. And so there were maybe alongside the land issue other massive priorities. And also I think if you look about, think about the historic base of the African National Congress, um, at least of all in the 20th century, yes. it's largely been the urban population. Mm. Um, you know, if you speak to someone in the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, which is, has, continues to have a very strong following um, in many of our rural areas, of course, numerically very small, mm. but I think in the hearts and minds of many people in the rural areas, their political program maybe spoke more to their immediate agrarian interests than, say, the political program of the ANC. Mm. But numerically, I mean, the majority of people are in the urban areas anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think the ANC, in the development of its own economic ideas, um, many people are critical of it, and they say, you know, they never thought of land. But, you know, the 1955 charter says yes. the land belongs to all oh, who live in it. it. Now, how do you apply that in this context? Mm. Uh, you might agree. Um, I mean, I have my own disagreements with the Freedom Charter. Mm. I don't think it's... It's a, a very strong exposition of the kind of uh, a liberation path and destination that, that I would personally like, and, and maybe that's, that's my own view. But what does that mean in this context? It means many of the people who work on the farms with insecure tenure, with very little productive capacity, very little access to export markets, very little access to technology, they have, in my view, in my reading of the Freedom Charter, a very strong claim on the land mm. because they work it. They work it. You know, they live, um, it. They live in it. Mm. Um, and yet, in our public discourse, very little about how we engage on the land reform project is about working people, and in particular, working women who live on that land. Mm. I come, for instance, from a village where you, you, you won't get land if, if, if you're a woman and you're not married. I don't get land as a young bachelor. Right? And yet, if you think about who works the land, who tills Emma Simini day in, day out, it's women. And yet, in terms of material claim to that land, they have no, no access to that. Mm. And so, the, for me, the big question is how then 
do we ensure that the land reform process does not reproduce those patterns in either side of the agricultural divide? Right? I spoke about this dualism between white agriculture and black agriculture. But how do you ensure in white agriculture that people who work on those farms have claim to that land so that you're not getting evicted tomorrow when the f a farm owner sells the farm and you leave the graves of your people there? But that you have claim to this land as a place that is yours under the sun. Mm. And similarly, I think we need to do the same in many of the areas that are under traditional authority. Actually, yeah. And, and redefine what it is that we understand that to mean. That's actually the next thing I wanted us to get into. A lot of the focus of this uh, conversation, I think up until the Khalima Mutlanta review panel mm. came with its findings about um, communal land mm. and how it's uh, organized, how it's controlled, how it's managed that the spotlight has not really fallen on that to say, what do we do about those people who are under the rule or leadership of chiefs? Um, what is their claim to the land? Uh, mm. Should they be given title deeds to the land? Uh, how should that framework uh, of land reform work in those contexts? So, so there's two sides to the debate in my view. I think the one is, and I am very critical of a fixation when it comes to tenure form with title deeds. I think title deeds are an individual capitalist commercialized form of tenure. And many people that are calling for the titling of people, I mean, we even saw Johan Rupert working with the Center for Development and Enterprise, handing out title deeds to people in Khafrenet um, and many other places. Mm. And I, I'm very concerned with that being the sort of teleological end of the project, okay. right? Um, because what it does is, is that it says, in a country as unequal as ours, if title is your only form of tenure, it has the possibility and the potential to reverse that land reform process. So, so let me give you an example. Many people, including the DA, make the argument that give people title deeds so that they can be able to go borrow against that land and start their own businesses. Now, as somebody who started a business, I can tell you, even if I had that money when I started my business, it wouldn't have meant that the fortunes of my business would have been any different mm. to what they are mm. now. Two. It's a major risk. But also number two, it's a massive risk if I default, as we often yeah. see with the default rates, mm. that that land goes into the ownership of the bank. Mm. Now, I'm saying we haven't been able in this country to be more creative in our analysis of tenure, to take into account or even create new way, yes. forms of tenure. Now, on the continent, this debate of title deeds isn't there. Because, you know, Achima Feja, one of the best sociologists to ever come out of this country, makes the argument and he says, everywhere on the continent of Africa, except in the perverted markets, I guess, of southern Africa, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, where settler governments have made it clear that they're going to invest, um, you know, just like they did for poor Africana whites, mm. you know, post the First World War. They're going to invest. But everywhere else on the continent, the shift to title deeds has not meant greater investment on that land. But number two, when we say there is communal ownership, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. Mm -hmm. Historically, as African people, our claim to land is determined by so many other sociological factors. Um, history of settlement, um, membership of certain groups within society, um, use rights on the land that are contingent to providing labor. So there's something in, in many of our villages called ilima, mm. which means if we work in my family plot today, mm. um, everybody comes in and we work here. Yeah. But that means there's an implicit obligation on me to provide labor exactly. when we go to the next mm. person. Mm. Now for me, 
that is not only a way to regulate the division of labor in the society for production purposes, it's also this reality of saying your use rights are contingent in you being able to contribute to the collective. Mm. Now, so the, the, debate, yeah, the debate for me yeah. is not really then about title deeds, if mm. we accept it like that. I mean, we've also seen the land bank, for instance, starting to issue products and instruments to people that have leases. It might be a long-term lease of, say, 40 years or 50 years or whatever, on permission to occupy land or on CPA land or even on communal land. So even the debate now around access to the financial sector for investment, insurance, and other purposes, if you can think creatively, can easily be circumvented. Mm. Why do I say this? I say it because <clears throat> I think in many times we, we try and impose the debate on title deeds as the only form of tenure, as a means to, th to try and say land markets in rural areas are not regulated, so they must look more like Johannesburg, mm -hmm. and we must densify them in the same fashion so we can deliver services easier. On the other hand, what we do is we use that in many ways to confront the chiefs. And I think many of the chiefs that we have in this country and, and the kings are an outcome of very undemocratic colonial yeah. imposition in some cases. Mm. Um, and so even if you did keep the same communal system, there is a need to have some form of recognition that we are in a constitutional framework. And there's certain means of accountability that need to be in direct alignment and compliance with the constitution. So if you're a chief, you can't do certain things that are unconstitutional. Right? That's why, you know, Dalin Jebo is in, is in prison as we speak. Mm. Because there is a supreme law of the land. Now, that supreme law, in my view, can allow for different tenure forms to coexist. Um, so just like you would have, um, I mean, what, what example can I use? Just like you would have different approaches to how you set up electricity in your home. Right? There are people who... Are prepaid, there are people who pay um, on an accrual basis at mm. the end of the month. There's nothing that stops us from saying that even in the context of the urban realities that we have, we can think and open the envelope when it comes to the kind of tenure forms that we have. Mm. And, and my view is that I think we, we, we've really exercised kid gloves on many of our traditional leaders, um, and wh who in many cases profit from this land, they sell it. Um, you know, I heard a very interesting story from an old man in the Eastern Cape a few years ago. And he was talking about the Wild Coast now. It's December time, and all of the very rich people in Johannesburg will be sort of packing their caravans and everything else and driving down to the coast in the Eastern Cape. And the big question is, how did they get that land? And some of the stories we've heard is, is that some of them got it, and I don't know if it's legend or it's true, but some of the people got that land by bribing some of those chiefs with liquor. Mm. You know, uh, well you know. Ala. Jazzy, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so, so, yeah. so for me, even this veneer of credibility that we give to the private system of tenure, historically across the development of capitalism, even in the United Kingdom, has really been on the back of a confronting and an assault of, of what is referred to as the commons. Mm. And in my view, I think it's, it's very duplicitous for us to speak about the sharing economy on one hand and not be able to apply the same frame when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, how we apportion land and the tenure systems that we use on that land. Now, my, my concern now is back to the point you made about those who work the land, particularly yeah. the women, yeah. because they are disenfranchised on 
disenfranchised on both sides, whatever uh, um, side of the land mm. tenure debate you come from. So how do we begin to resolve the situation? How do we make this um, debate not just a debate about uh, whether we give people title deeds or not, mm. whether you know people stay on communal land or not, um, whether they can get collateral and get loans mm. or not? Um, how do we actually make it such that this reality of these people who work the land can actually benefit fully and broadly from this land? You asked me about the EFF earlier. Mm. You know, the EFF has one of the most interesting slogans, uh, which I think is, is powerful in response to your question, which is this idea of one woman, one hectare. Now... We, we can debate whether or not, I mean, it's suitable, it's, it's enough or whatever, that's fine. But for me, what it introduces in the discourse is this idea of matching in our context where we have many single mothers, where the task of reconstructing the family fiber, men have reneged from that task, mm. by and large, mm. to reconnect the function in social reproduction that women undertake and link that to their claim to the land. That's powerful. You can't run away from that. Yeah. Um, because in, what it does is that it doesn't only subvert the capitalist modes of relations, mm. it also subverts the very patriarchal relations on the countryside. Mm. Because it says, yeah, well, now you think you might have claim because you have a dangling thing between your legs and nothing else. Well, we're going to break that link and give material power back to the woman who, by and large, carry this country on their shoulders. Mm. I, I think that's a powerful proposition. Yeah. Um, and so w we do need something like that, mm. in my view. Um, and I also think it will go a long way in addressing many of the power or unequal power relations that women find themselves in, mm. which give rise to things like gender-based violence, which give rise to uh, the kind of dominant patriarchal relations that we continue to see across our society. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank cool. you so much, Aya. Thanks, guys. Yeah. It's been great. It's been a wonderful awesome. conversation. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much.